Mark chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why is Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go to prepare and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And, it was, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes... As it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took the bread after uh, blessing it and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we do pray this morning that you would give us our daily bread, that you would feed us the good news that's come from your table of grace. Lord, your servants here listen. We pray that you would speak even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Question for you. How do Christians read their Bibles? How do Christians read their Bibles? You say, well, they just, you know, crack open the the book and just begin somewhere and start reading like you would with any book. Okay, sure. But I'm asking specifically, 
How is it that one understands what they're reading? Do you read the Bible perhaps like it's a, a history book? So that you, you would open it up like you would read a high school book on, on the American Revolution. And you pick it up and you just go read through, okay, this happened and this happened and this happened. Do, do you read the Bible like it would be a fictional tale? Like perhaps you had picked up, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter and, and you say, ooh, I'm going to read this epic tale. Uh, not that the events necessarily are true, but as I'm reading through, it's kind of giving me this picture and reality of good and evil. Encouraging, but not necessarily what actually happened. No, friends, I would encourage you, as you read your Bibles, especially in the Gospels, something deeper than just history and something more real and meaningful than just a fictional tale. Spurgeon says that we are to visit many books, but we are to live in the Bible. For if you step into the word, supposing it is only a foot or two deep, it doesn't take very long for you to realize that you're up to your neck or your nose. And realizing the myriad of ways that the Bible speaks to us takes us beyond mere history and it takes us beyond mere fiction. The way this functions, especially in the Gospels, is with a heart and intent to tell us historically things that did indeed actually happen, but in such a way that we are swept up into God's dramatic tale of redemption found in Christ. So that what we are hearing truly happened, but it is not in a bland recounting way. You see, what we are reading here even this morning is not being told to, just so you know, this happened. And just so you know, that happened. Then, then the very next thing that happened. No. What we are reading and hearing this morning, it brings to life what is going on by using things like bookends, by using things like flashbacks and typology. And this morning is another great example of those three things. Here we have with both bookends, a flashback, and rich typology showing us and unfolding in an epic tale of what really did happen. Uh, recall how last week, how it ended. Jesus went back uh, in chapter 12. He had been countering all of his opponents at the temple in great wisdom. And there he was teaching. And then he, he and his disciples, they headed out of the temple up to the Mount of Olives. And then he taught them there about the destruction of this temple and his second coming. And then we are told then of the plot thickening against Jesus. That while Mark introduces this new section with the leaders plotting, it is as if he is interrupted mid-sentence. So he's saying, ah, we open up here with the, with the chief priests and the scribes. They are plotting to get Jesus and then, oh, hold on, let me rewind and begin a flashback so that you will have an important background at this moment. And brilliant storytellers know how to give us this. Sometimes we see this in a book or a movie where at the right moment, we see an event that occurred earlier, but it helps us to understand the current events that are going on in this moment. For example, if you just saw a scene of me decking some guy, you'd say, oh, this Thomas guy is not that friendly or kind at all. But then if you had a flashback where you saw this guy had just stolen my sandwich, you would say, he didn't hit him hard enough. The flashback helps emphasize what is going on in the present, doesn't it? In all of the events in Jesus' life, Mark could recount for us all sorts of things that had occurred, but he specifically is weaving into this plot 
the key things that help us unlock this question that has been raised in Mark over and over. Who is Jesus? Why has he come? And and so we might say the Gospels are rich narrative history. The Gospels are a true biography of one man told perhaps in story form. So that scene by scene, our picture of Jesus goes from being fuzzy to being sharp and focused. So this morning through the bookends, the flashback, and the typology, we will see an unfolding clear picture of Christ. First, the first bookend. Bookends, you know, they're, they're, they're mirror each other. And the first one here, again, is of the chief priests and the scribes. They're looking to kill Jesus. They have a desire to rid the world of this one called Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, this one that has captured the attention of the crowds has gained their favor. And interestingly here, Mark says that as they're plotting this, they must do so incognito, by stealth. They can't do this outwardly and openly. They must be careful not to incite a riot from the crowds in doing so. Recall that during the week of Passover, that Jerusalem swelled, uh, just as with recently the, the Sandy Mountain Festival. As you're driving through, you're going, where did all these people come from? Go home. I can't drive through. And so it was with Jerusalem. All these people had swelled, and some estimate somewhere around five to six times the normal population of Jerusalem. It swelled. It was, there was a massive amount of people there. And you know, when you have a lot of people together, tensions rise sometimes. And so they have to be careful. And so this is the first plot, the first bookend that we see this morning. And then Mark rewinds a bit for us. If we were watching the movie at this point, we'd see the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they've got this maniacal plot they're doing. And then it would say, if it was a movie, little white letters saying four-ish days earlier. And, and then all of a sudden, we'd come to this different scene here. Here among great hatred for Jesus, we're to see someone with pure devotion to Jesus. So we get the flashback. They asked things uh, at the time. People were unsure about who Jesus were. They were asking things like, well, who is this even that the wind and sea obey him? But here in the latter half, we see with less and less ambiguity, less neutrality. Uh, some are really, really with Jesus, while some are really, really against him. But here in this scene, we have simple belief, giving, devotedness. The actions of this unnamed woman, at least for Mark, are straightforward. She has a pure uh, flask or jar of ointment. Uh, we, it is of, uh, we might think more of like an essential oil of spikenard. And, and this is not just a, a little tiny, you know, little essential oil bottle. This would, would have been more like a, a true pint size, although perhaps a little less. And she breaks it open and she pours the whole thing onto Jesus' head. And this is not a big deal. Until you realize the price involved. Now, there, there was uh, a few years back, I was walking into a building and a woman was walking out of the building and she smelled very strong of some essential oil and it smelled really good. And I, I, this, this is strange, I'm strange, you know, but I, I, I just thought, hey, uh, hold on. So I turned back to, to chase her and I said, hey, I'm a married man, and this is really weird, but what essential oils are you wearing? They smell really good. And I think she said something like, well, lavender and bergamot and, and frankincense and myrrh. And I began to think about, okay, cool, thank you. And so I, I, I knew we had some lavender oil at home, and I went to go online and look up the price of some of these things. Holy smokes. I mean, some of the price of, of these little bottles. 
I mean, of one-fifth of an ounce. Somewhere, some were approaching 40 or $50 for the good stuff. And so I was thinking, oh. Now, if I had gone online and I had seen that for one-fifth of an ounce that one of these was, well, you know, a year's wage, I, I wouldn't have just been shocked. I would have been completely taken aback. I would have been overwhelmed. And, and, and I think we would, we would come unglued if we were here because what we see here is this woman has poured out a year's wage on Jesus. Nowadays, we have high-tech farming practices. We have cheap shipping. We have machines that will do all the labor. But even in today's value, Spikenard, the good stuff, runs about five dollars or $600 for the amount that, they poured, that she poured on Jesus in today's value. But back then, in their money, it would have been somewhere around forty dollars to $60,000 worth. And the reason, it was very time-consuming and costly to make this. This wasn't typically the sort of thing that you would just go out and buy. Typically, this was something that was inherited because it was, it was traded in a swap for a big piece of land, perhaps. And so the, the family may have this, uh, this flask on hand and maybe just pour out a couple drops or two for a special occasion. But you surely wouldn't go out and just dump this whole thing. That's, that would have, there's no way. And the Gospel of John actually points out that the, this woman who's unnamed here in, in Mark is Mary. This is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Remember, recall Lazarus who was raised from the dead. She was one who sat at Jesus' feet to hear him teach. And while her sister was working, she scolded her for not getting to work and helping serving. And Jesus, remember, rebukes her saying, no, it is good to sit at the feet and hear And it's not essential here, but you better believe that this woman here in Mark had every reason to see in Christ a man, but far more than just a man, church, to see here he is the Christ. She scolded in Luke for listening to Jesus. She scolded here for wasting all that ointment on Jesus. And some of the group here, and and likely they were some of the disciples, chastised her for wasting the perfume that could have been sold and used to feed or clothe the poor. Isn't that what's brought up? Hey, why'd you do that? We could, sell, we could sell this and give it to the poor. That is, here he says, no, first Jesus notes, he says, look, the poor is always going to be with you. That is, no matter what you do, write politics, uh, give a billion dollars to charities, it's just the way the nature of this fallen world will be. The poor will always be with us. We, we won't, that won't change until the new heaven, the new earth. And yet, We must be careful not to write off the poor. During the medieval church age and elsewhere, this passage unfortunately was used to do just essentially that. The the church at the time said, look, if the poor is always going to be with you, it doesn't really matter. What you ought to do is really give all of your funds then to the church so we can build up beautiful cathedrals while the poor went hungry. And sadly, that that did happen. And Jesus rather, he, he, he commends Uh, her actions, and yet he still leaves room for us to help the poor. He says regarding the poor, you will always have them with you, yes, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. And and the rest of the epistles flesh this out, that it is good for us to help those who are hungry, who are in need. But here, he commends her actions because of the gravity of this moment, calls for great, bold, lavish, wasting on Jesus. And remember, if we were there, In the position of these disciples, we too would be like those who said, what a waste. Why waste it all like that? Okay, 
I can justify spending a little bit on Jesus, um, a little sacrifice, perhaps a few sprinkles on his head, maybe a tablespoon at most, but a whole bottle on him, wasted on Jesus. But this woman, I think this woman understood what she was doing. She had heard, I think in various ways, the central line of the gospel of Mark, where Jesus makes it very clear who he is and what he's come to do. Remember, he, recall he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think this woman understood that. She sat at his feet, hearing that message, believed that message, and she recognized what she was about to do for Jesus. He's about to give his life for the many, which included her. And if we were there and we knew that we were about to watch a man who has never done a single thing wrong, and he was to trade places with us to die on the cross where we belonged, his life for ours, knowing that our sin means we deserve the cross, and yet he was going as a sacrifice in our place so that now, even as we die, we will truly not die, but we will live. I think you and I, without a blink, would be the first to place at his feet all of our treasure. We would say, Jesus, here is the family inheritance. We would say, Jesus, you can take my car to ride it up to the cross. Jesus, here is my family's best sheep. We can add it to the Passover feast before you go to the cross. We would say, Jesus, here is my all. I give you everything I've got. The other people at this scene, they don't get it. This woman, she really, really gets it. What came to mind as I was reading uh, this was a bluegrass tune written by Bill Monroe and Doc Watson many years ago. And uh, it's an old, old tune, but it, it says, what would you give in exchange for your soul? What would you give in exchange for your soul? Oh, if God should call you away, what would you give in exchange for your soul? Friends, you cannot give enough in exchange for your soul. No dollar amount. No career, no 30 seconds of sexual pleasure, no entertainment, no lavish oil is worth your soul. Some of us, I think we read this and we almost think, okay, I get, I get how this works. I understand what this lady did and I get it now. I have to give up some stuff and then Jesus will be happy with me and he's going to then give me eternal life. And I just want to be very clear in this moment, that won't work. Religion tells us, give the perfume so you can get eternal life. The gospel says, see that Jesus paid it all and feel free now to give whatever to Christ. Religion says, if you've done something wrong, pay the price so the balance is zeroed out. But the gospel says, you cannot pay the price. Only Jesus paid it all. So believe that. Notice there are two women that Jesus has recently commended. A couple weeks ago, we, we spoke about the one woman who she shows up and Jesus says, hold on, disciples, come here. I want you to see this woman. She puts in the two denarii into the offering plate. It was about $5 in today's money. He says, this woman has given it all. I want, and he commends her. And so notice we have two women on two completely different spectrums. One, $5. One, a year's wage. You cannot get any further. And Jesus loves and commends them both for their actions. Because, friends, it's not about the dollar amount. 
It's not about the total dollar amount. He wants you. He wants your hour of free time. He wants your day off. He wants your devotion. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to go all in on him. Notice too, the, the, the woman is not grieved. She's not struggling to give this. She's not saying, oh, I don't really want to, but I guess I have to. She is just recognizing here is my savior. What else is, would you do? This is the reasonable thing to do at this very moment. And so with eager joy, she pours it out. Pray that God would give you joy as you give him your all. As you honor Christ with, with your time or with your finances or with your energy. What, whatever it is that you've got, that you would honor him with that. And that you would have joy as you do it. It's not begrudgingly. This woman is at the heart of this Markin sandwich. Uh, she is sitting between these two bookends. Uh, this book is a book about discipleship, and Mark is showing us, while the plot thickens with Jesus' enemies on the bookends, the chief priests, and soon we'll see Judas, Iscariot, he's the second bookend. But not all are plotting murder. Some are plotting, this woman, to prepare Christ for burial. In love, as a true follower of Jesus, this woman, Mary, she values Jesus at the highest cost. Here is the disciple of Christ. And so if this flashback helps us to see a woman who really believes and really trusts in Christ with great faith through her actions, we're now going to get a picture of betrayal, a lack of faith, theft. We see in Judas the exact opposite response to Christ. At this point, in the town of Jerusalem, somebody, I don't know who, maybe the scribes and the Pharisees, they've all gone up and they plastered on every telephone pole in Jerusalem a wanted ad for Jesus. Now, I know you won't believe me, but back then there was no internet. There was no, nobody knew what Jesus looked like. Nobody, nobody had a clue. They just knew this guy's name was Jesus of Nazareth and they've heard the rumors about what he'd done. But it had been very clear. So they put, put up a wanted ad. Large sum of money offered if you will give him up to us. And uh, it's, it's very clear here that Judas Iscariot on his own accord says to himself, here's my chance to strike it rich. Recall, he had been one of the 12. He'd been with Jesus for his entire three-year ministry. He had seen the miracles. He had heard the wisdom. He had tasted of the love of Christ, the grace, the patience, the glory. And in unbelief, he seeks financial gain over following Christ as a true disciple. And this then is the second bookend. We, we see verses 1 and 2. The chief priests and scribes were looking to arrest and kill Jesus in unbelief. We saw the antithesis of great love for Christ with the woman and the ointment. And then, and then now we see the other bookend. Jude, Judas is partnering with the chief priests and the, and the scribes to arrest Jesus. And this brings us again to the sad reality. This is a repeated motif or theme that shows up in Mark. Is that you can be with Jesus and not be of Jesus. Uh, you can be one of the inner and yet truly be on the out, outside of redemption. So then here, the 12, they, they head into a prepared and furnished room where they will share in the Passover meal with Jesus. It is very clear here that while the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests and others who seek to do away with Jesus as they are scrambling to get him, uh, it's easy to think that they're in control at this moment. But meanwhile, Mark wants us to see and show us that Jesus is in full control 
Why? Because as they plan, they are fulfilling his plan. Even here, Jesus knows the room that they're going to eat this Passover in and who it is who's going to betray him. See this with me at verse uh, 17 through through 21, just briefly here. Um, And when it was evening, he came in with the 12 and they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12 the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. We know from the other Gospels then, after verse 21 right here, that Judas had actually departed to betray Jesus. He actually heads out at this point. And then we enter what is the institution of the Lord's Supper. So kind of having completed these this very short bookends uh, with the woman in the middle. And now we turn to this section where we're going to see typology. I know that's a big word. I'll try to unpack it a little bit here. Typology. This scene is a bit lost, I think, on, on first-time Bible readers. The significance of this has to be put into its historical context. The Passover in the book of Exodus becomes emblematic of what God is going to do for all of his people all of, t- of time. Um, And so this kind of brings us back to how it is we read our Bibles. And we know that Mark is weaving in these key scenes for us to see a richer pattern of Jesus saving us. So to God throughout all of scripture places in key pieces in history that are types, we might say. Another way of saying this is shadows. What was acted out in history becomes a key to unlocking what God has done, not only in history, but spiritually for us in Christ. This is what is behind the actions and the events of the Passover. It functions like a mini model of what spiritually and cosmically is happening to all of God's people. The, the Passover with the, the last plague, as Hebrews, uh, as, as we see with the Hebrews, they were exiting out of Egypt. Recall that God had told the Hebrews to sacrifice a lamb. And after they sacrificed the lamb, they're to put the blood on the doorposts and over the lintel, which is the upper part there. And as they put this blood over their homes in faith, trust in God, the destroyer was to come and he was to pass over. That's where the term comes from. He's passing over their home. The destroyer is not going to stop at their house if they have the blood covering over the doorframe. But the destroyer will come to those of Egypt who don't trust in Yahweh and will kill and take their firstborn. And and this unfolds. The people of Israel, they obeyed, they did so. And in the morning, there were cries from all of Egypt who did not have the blood covering over their doorposts as their firstborn were dead. Later, after God saved the people out of their slavery, he instituted a yearly Passover where they would remember the salvation that God provided. During that same time period, he implemented the Mosaic covenant, a covenant which was based on sacrifice and blood that was used to sprinkle on the altar. So every year, believing Jews would celebrate the Passover with a certain order to their celebration. Families would gather, much like we might get together on Christmas with our family members, and we'd gather together, and they would have a full meal prepared. By the time of Jesus's era, it's interesting, uh, there was a, a kind of a ritual, there was a ceremony to it all. There were four cups of wine that they would take their time and go through each cup. 
as they would pass it around and, and make their way and they would retell the story, the, the, the children would ask, why, why is it that we celebrate the Passover? The fathers would then recount all of, of Israel's history through the, through the exodus out of Egypt. And they would sing the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalm 113 to 118, the Psalms of Praise. And here Jesus is going through, he's simply doing this yearly ritual with them. And you have to ask the question, does Jesus's final week of, of life happen to just by random chance fall on Passover? Is this, is, is this just by random chance? Hear me on this. He's not just celebrating Passover. He is fulfilling and at the same time and moment changing the whole meaning of Passover. In other words, Jesus is now showing that he ultimately is what the Passover points to. A new salvation that is not for the firstborn only. See, who was it who was spared from death? It was the firstborn of Egypt that died. It was the firstborn of the Jews with the blood covering on their homes that were saved. But now, in this new salvation, it is for not just the firstborn. It's for those who've been born again. It's for all those who enter into the new covenant by his blood, by faith, by trusting in Jesus. If you have yet to see the full relevance of this, then ask, where is it that the judgment landed for the people back in the story of the Exodus? Judgment landed on who? Well, it landed on the firstborn of the Egyptians. Then you have to ask yourself, with this newer Passover, this greater Passover that Jesus is instituting, where is it the judgment falls? On God's firstborn. On his son, his only begotten son who dies to save you, to cover you with his blood so that the death, the destroyer will not pass, will not hit you, it will pass over you so that you would be saved. Even here this, this morning in a few moments as we take communion, we will remember visibly, tangibly, that although death, the destroyer, should have come for us, that Christ has passed over our sin. Romans 3 uses that language. Jesus passed over our sin. And Romans chapter 3 is using that language very intentionally about a newer and better Passover in Jesus. Listen to the words here. For all have sinned. That's all of us. We've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he, listen, passed over former sins. Friends, this is so key. This is bound up with the very heart of the gospel. It's what we celebrate every Sunday. We're re-celebrating. God has overlooked our sin. He has given us grace. He has saved us from what you and I deserve. And if we're backing up here just a bit to see this section in in Mark we're in here in Mark chapter 14, we recognize first, like the woman with the ointment, no amount we spend on Christ is too much. For Christ Jesus paid it all in his blood and in his body to pass over our sin, ushering in a new covenant and ushering in a new Passover so that we by faith, would trust in Christ in his greater redemption. 
Now, I admit, clearly this morning's passage, this whole scene, it has a heavier tone, doesn't it? Jesus is going to die. This is very clear. It's heavier. It's got a heavy tone. But even here, see how this morning's passage ends. I want you to catch this. It ends with with this simple little line, but it's a line that implies joy, implies hope, implies this is not how the story ends. Look at verse 22, and we'll, we'll conclude with 25 there. As they were eating, he took the bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There, a couple days ago, I was having a conversation with a friend, and he said, look, I, I back in, this was many years ago in college or someplace like that, um, I wrote a, a paper on this word, eucatastrophe. Um, I don't know if you've heard that word, but we were discussing epic tales, we were discussing the Bible, we were talking about Lord of the Rings and some other trilogies and, and epic stories. And he says, eucatastrophe, it's this great word. And I said, well, tell me what it means. And the strict definition is a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story, a happy ending. He said, in other words, it's that moment where you everything looks like it's going to go wrong. Everything looks like it's going to be horribly wrong. It's going to end in tragedy. And then there's just one little twist in the whole plot line that changes everything. And it ends in joy. And, and as you see here, as Christ is, is speaking in this last little line here in, in verse 25, he says, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What is Jesus speaking about there? He says, oh, this looks like it'll end in death, but it will not end in death. There's coming a moment where all things are going to come undone and there will be a new place where we will dine together and we will enjoy this forever. And what we have in the Passover, both in the Egyptian Passover with the, with the Jews and in Jesus's Passover, it's a eucatastrophe. That's exactly what it is. Remember with the Jews, it was, they ended up on the very shores there of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is encroaching. They're saying to each other, this is it. We're going to die. This is the end of the road. And in a eucatastrophe moment, it all comes untrue as they pass through on dry ground while the Egyptian army is swallowed up. And so too, with this moment here, it seems like not only is man going to die in sin, but God himself is going to die and be swallowed up and it'll be a complete tragedy. But what we have here at this moment, it appears Jesus has come to the end of the line, but a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story will come about where our mourning will be turned to joy and we'll see a happy ending. This is pictured so well for us in the words of J.R. Tolkien, where Sam utters to Gandalf, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought I'm, I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water on a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. Someday, because of what Jesus has done here in this moment, everything sad 
will come untrue. And we too with Jesus will drink of the fruit of the vine in the kingdom where the pure sound of merriment will go on, friends, for days and days without end. I can't wait. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to see you as this woman sees you? Like Mary who sees you and sees you for who you really are. Is willing to pour out all of herself. Pour out the inheritance on you. Would you call us to be living sacrifices even as we live in belief now? Would you help us to leverage our time, our finances, our energy? For the one who leveraged it all. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.